0: It is so clear from all of my conversations this season in particular that the business and the learning model that has served so much of higher education over the past 100 plus years is no longer working. In fact, some of our guests call it broken. While the challenges are real and significant, so are the opportunities for those institutions that are able to be clear-eyed and look beyond the immediate moment and Challenge. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this final episode of an Ingenious You Season Three. We are so grateful for our thousands of listeners around the globe and for your engagement with us as we've had conversations during the past three seasons with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. We will be taking a short summer break while we get ready for the launch of season four later in September. And while on break, we will be sharing some of our most listened to episodes from previous seasons, as well as launching our new YouTube channel featuring videos of some of our most highly rated conversations. So even while we may be away for a short while, we hope you will continue to listen and to send us your very valuable reactions and feedback. Now we have a tradition here at Ingenious U. At the end of each season, my colleague, Dr. Mila Ducca and I debrief the season just concluded. And this gives us a chance to highlight some of the top issues that are on higher ed leaders minds right now. And it is a great forum for you, our listeners to respond to. Are there other things top of mind for you? Give us your feedback by clicking the question link on this episode and tell us what you think. With that, I'm delighted to welcome Mila back to Ingenious You for this final episode of season three.
1: Melissa, thank you. It's great to be back again after a really interesting, I think, third season, Uh, building on the previous two. um, I I know, I think I share the experience of a lot of folks that, uh, you know, coming on the heels of a pivotal, pivotal period for higher education, and um, uh, this group of leaders and thinkers um, was really interesting to listen to, and um, uh, lots, lots of things in this year, I think, to unpack. And so um, actually, if you'll allow me, I'd like to kind of jump in, and as, as, um, as is our custom, and turn the tables a little bit. I'd like to ask you to share with us. Um, uh, you know, as you reflect on the folks that you spoke with and the messages that, that they really brought uh, to the podcast this year, um, were there some themes that you heard in what they were saying and and um, what, what did you take away uh, from the conversations?
0: Thank you for asking that question. Uh, what a year to be interviewing leaders, uh, particularly as we are Uh, where we are in higher education at the end, perhaps of the pandemic, but not quite. Uh, And with so much disruption and change continuing to unfold in higher ed. And that, that really sets the stage for the themes that emerged in our conversations. And I would say there are five overarching themes that were common. Uh, to greater or lesser extent across nearly all of the conversations. And so let me unpack them one by one. The first, not surprisingly, has to do with the sense of urgency that so many of our guests are feeling and and that they expressed about the need to get real about the work being done on college and university campuses in the DEI space. And from these conversations, I would suggest that the concerns have moved to a different level than what we've heard in the past. And this is a good thing, Uh, something undoubtedly influenced by the pandemic and its disproportionate impact on students from marginalized, from underrepresented backgrounds. And so a few common threads in regard to this sense of urgency around getting real with DEI work. As you know, we spoke with Dr. Tia Brown-McNair, who is a real expert thought leader in this space, vice president with the AACU, co-author of one of the best books to come out in recent times. And then also Dr. Amir Ahmed, who heads up the DEI work at the University of Vermont. Both of them stressed the importance of aligning what you're saying, what your commitment is that you're talking about to what you're actually doing, what your institutional actions are. And as they point out, lots of institutions have gotten pretty good at the talk now but they, they haven't figured out how to align what they are saying and the commitment that they talk about with institutional practices in a deep and abiding way. Dr. Ahmed Amir spoke about the crucial role that leaders play in embodying the equity goals in supporting what he calls institutional truth-telling, and I just really uh, appreciate the language that he uses in that regard. He suggests that institutional structure reflects a great deal about whether or not you're really authentic and getting it real in your vision for DEI. So for example, is there diversity among your senior leaders and in the senior decision-making roles across the institution? How about the board? Is the board sufficiently diverse? This speaks volumes to students about how serious you are about your DEI commitment. When you hire for new senior level positions, do you take the time to do everything possible to build a diverse pool, or do you simply go for someone, typically a majority person who's already in your network, because that's the easy thing to do? Those are some of the questions that he is talking about that he says reflect truth-telling and whether you are, in fact, uh, telling the truth in, in terms of your commitment. You know, structure, uh, Mila, is not something we hear much about when we talk about DEI work. And I find uh, Mayor's insights in this regard to be so wise and and on target. Uh, Let me just end with um, this theme with a couple of things. A number of our guests talked about the importance of building an equity-minded campus culture. And again, Tia is very eloquent in how she talks about this, to quote her. We're not talking about approaching this from a deficit-minded perspective, but instead really understanding that the responsibility for educating our historically marginalized and our racially minoritized students falls on us as an institution, as educators, that we really have to do the examination of our policies, our practices, and our structures to figure out why some students are succeeding and why others are not. We need to engage in collecting qualitative and quantitative data, which we call in the book, equity-minded sense-making, to understand the how and the why that some aspects of our work are serving students better than others. And then she goes on to stress the importance of people who work in higher ed being intentional about creating equitable learning environments. Because as you and I both know, unless you are being intentional about what it is that you say is important, the end of the day, it doesn't happen. And intentionality grows out of the practice of equity mindedness. And that's the final piece that uh, Tia and others talked about developing such a practice. It's no different from the kind of practice that you commit to in learning a new skill, such as playing a musical instrument, taking up a new sport, you're not going to get there just by doing some reflection, answering a few questions, attending an occasional workshop, reading the book, Or reading articles. You have to force yourself to be thinking about accountability in your head in an ongoing way. If you think about the kind of practice you commit to when learning something new, it's the same thing. This is something you can actually study and think about. What is the process? What's the accountability? How am I asking questions? How do you move from being a first-generation equity practitioner to a more seasoned practitioner. Where do you do that? By practice, by asking those deeper questions. And so I'm going to stop there. There's a lot there. So much more I could have said. But Mila, does any of this resonate with you and your experience?
1: It it really does, Melissa. And and I'm so glad that you talked about these two uh, uh, podcasts and the messages that Tia and Amir um, really, I think, articulated uh, so well. But importantly, the way they kind of work together, um, they really uh, create a, a whole, um, um, I think, that can really be used as guidance. So um, the, the, the thing that I particularly b- both agree with your statement and with Amir is the, the notion of structure, of, of how do we embed it, DEI work, Uh, uh, commitment, uh, development in all uh, all sorts of ways uh, for the institution, for our stakeholders, uh, into the structure, the fabric of the institution. Um, uh, Certainly the work is individual, but it is also community-based, and when we embed it into those institutional organizational structures, we are making a commitment and we're holding ourselves accountable. So I think that, that piece was particularly powerful uh, in, 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 in the podcast and, and what you have, have really articulated. Um, the other thing I think that, that comes out in, 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 in your um, uh, uh, you know, kind of recounting of this is um, that, it, again, much like embedding it in structure, it's the work we do day-to-day, moment-to-moment, practice practice and uh, much like innovation and change, something that we talk quite a bit about, um, uh, this is innovation and change work, and and you don't just do it one day and then go back to to the work that you do uh, every other day. Uh, so I think that that notion of how does it um, how does it become integrated into the work we do individually as a community? How do we continue to Develop that mindset really, um, I think, resonates both with the experience I've had and and we continue to have in our current um, higher education context.
0: The second theme has to do with this notion of a big rethink that is underway. It is so clear from all of my conversations this season in particular that the business and the learning model that has served so much of higher education over the past 100-plus years is no longer working. In fact, some of our guests call it broken. Um, And there are many reasons for this. Most immediately, there are more headwinds blowing than at any recent time in higher ed, from demographic shifts to diminished trust in the value of higher ed, to financial challenges, to the explosion of alternative avenues and educational opportunities, and so much more. While the challenges are real and significant, so are the opportunities for those institutions that are able to be clear-eyed and look beyond the immediate moment and challenge. But the headwinds impact individual institutions differently. And as a result, there's no one right way forward or one size fits all response that works for all Colleges and universities. Let me mention a few of the guests and some of their particular insights, beginning with Michelle Weiss, who talks about the 100 plus year work life now being projected by futurists and experts on aging and longevity. Her question is, how do we need to prepare students for longer working lives with many more transitions and increased need and expectations for continual reskilling and reshaping of one's notion of work? And that this suggests a different role for colleges and universities, but also a wonderful opportunity for those who can embrace this position and find a way to position themselves to become the place for lifelong learning and reskilling, retooling. For their alumni, among among others, I have to say the notion of a 150 year life, which is what this is based on, gives me pause. I don't know if I want to live to be 150, but but I think the um, you know the implications are clear that if people are living longer, then education and learning needs to be thought of as differently. It's not a one and done kind of um, uh, experience at all. Michael Crow president of Arizona State talks about the importance of not following the long held and widely accepted norms in higher ed about reputation and how things should be done. And he makes the case for really unpacking your institution's unique value proposition, making sure you're not simply following the crowd with your strategy. I love this. He is very bold. He calls for a rejection of the bureaucratic model under which so much of higher ed still operates. That's not surprising to you, right? That I, I like the rejection of bureaucracy in any way, shape or form. Um, he, he also stresses building a design management model. And it's clear that he's advocating for a new role for university leaders, leaders who are design thinkers, leaders who are strategizing, who are strategy leaders clearly the role he's playing and has played at Arizona State. And by this, he's talking about leading and managing in a much more entrepreneurial and flexible way, including empowering the faculty to be designers of the learning experience, to be zealots of the learning experience, as opposed to getting stuck in these petty arguments about who is going to get what resources. He also talks about freeing universities from their fixation, about operating only on academic time which he equates to moving at a glacial speed versus moving more quickly, and with flexibility and embracing technology, which enables the faculty to enhance the learning process and the adaptation process in ways that are game-changing for our students and for the university. Crow's a big advocate, as you know, for transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary learning. He advocates for designing our curricula so that the boundaries between the disciplines are fluid, so that students learn how to think in ways that enable them to connect the dots. Given the complexity of the problems that we're facing in this world, that approach makes a great deal of sense to me. Our world needs people who can bring integrated perspectives to bear to address these challenging issues. A single disciplinary approach and preparation is not going to be sufficient or adequate for many fields in the future. Joanne Soliday, founder of the consulting firm Credo and co-author of the fairly recent book, Pivot, talks about the need for an overhaul of both what is taught and how learning is delivered. And while she feels there are some things with a historical context that may always need to be taught, she sees an urgency around making learning more relevant to current times and current student demographics. She believes this is already happening in our community colleges and with other programs that serve adult learners. And you know, I wondered why, and then I realized, well, it's because adult learners are much more demanding and insistent that their education be relevant. She also mentions how excited she is about the emergence of personal learning pathways and the work underway to structure learning in a much more highly personalized and tailored way to exactly where our student is at, by way of skills, abilities, and interests. And thanks to artificial intelligence and its use in personalized learning, the experience and the potential here is very exciting. She's hopeful about the new crop of professors now coming into higher ed classrooms, professors that are much more savvy and open to using technology in new and exciting ways. She's also excited about the emergence of this new profession called learning design. This is the old profession, instructional design, that's now been retooled and they're using this new name, learning design, learning design technologists. These are the folks who work hand in hand uh, to design learning experiences that are dynamic and result in effective learning. They, They work hand in hand with faculty. And what she says is, I think, There will be learning designers in every university who can help professors design for all those folks so that they can concentrate on the content. And the professors and the learning designers can help them deliver it to all different kinds of learning. Wow, what a compelling and positive vision. So let me wrap up this thing just by saying, I think the key insights in terms of this big rethink that's underway can probably be summarized as following. First of all, the future of post-secondary learning is going to be undoubtedly increasingly digital and hybrid, combining in-person and online elements to create greater flexibility related to place and time. Second, the pandemic certainly expanded the market for technologies and services designed to improve academic and administrative functions in the learner experience. Number three, non-degree certificate and micro-credential programs, as well as non-institutional providers, are going to continue to grow in response to many learners' expanding preference for alternatives to the traditional degree programs. And then fourth and finally, ongoing technological and economic change means individuals are going to need more frequent, more accessible, and more affordable, high-quality learning engagements across a longer lifespan. What that means, many, many more choices for students, but also for institutions. So Mila, are there any other examples you've seen of the big rethink that you wanna add or anything you wanna comment on? In terms of what i've just mentioned
1: well, well there are two things that i want to respond to and what you have just meant, mentioned because i think again i think uh, it, it, you've captured that really nicely um and uh both the the fluidity with which we need to think about educational um uh, opportunities delivery um and and how that is really spreading across um, a lifetime. Uh, it is a little daunting to think that that could be 125 years of education with another 25 years of retirement if you're 150. Uh, but uh, but again, the call for all of us um, to ask the question of um, if that's the case, what, is that, what does that mean that we do differently? And how do we think about the educational experience for students and who our students are and what they need when? Um, it's sort of the accounting or, or the uh, supply model of just-in-time education um, spread across a lifetime. Uh, and, and so it opens up some uh, really interesting doors uh, and creates some interesting challenges uh, for colleges and universities. So I, I think this, um, this part of the the conversation in those folks that you've identified um, um, really capture that well. The other thing I um, really uh, connected with, um, because I think it's so valuable, is learning design um, and and working with experts. Um, who really understand how to craft uh, experiences online and in-person that produce the kinds of outcomes that that we need, students need. Uh, And I will say personally, I think that also applies to areas, as you you know, my background is in student affairs, student life. uh, And and while I think we're really good at designing those kinds of learning experiences in the out of class, um, I know how I've benefited. Uh, by thinking about and engaging with professionals and, and colleagues around how do, we, how do we really power up that outcome for students uh, in, in ways that um, touch their lives across their educational experience.
0: And so the third theme I have entitled shifting our institutional mindset focus from me to we. And let me, let me just uh, expound on what I mean by that. Uh, very few colleges and universities are going to be able to survive on their own bottom or in an isolated kind of box going forward. And I'm, I'm not the only one saying this, that's something you hear increasingly from folks who are observers of higher education. And yet this is the way so many institutions have operated over the past 100 plus years, isolated within and isolated in their relationship to the external world. Now, we were so fortunate to have conversations with a number of leaders who are doing incredible things in connecting their campuses to their broader communities. And not only does this expand the resources available to them, it opens up all kinds of new opportunities for students, for the faculty, and for the campus community at large. And perhaps one of the most impressive examples I've seen in how a college or university might become a powerful force for strengthening its community while also expanding its own asset base and learning opportunities is Drexel University. Our conversation with President John Fry was informative on so many levels under his leadership at Drexel since 2010. The campus has literally been transformed. They have set a, a national example for the execution of public-private partnerships and for becoming a groundbreaking force for economic development in greater Philadelphia where they are located. I was struck by how clear-eyed and focused President Fry is about this. The transformation underway there started with a hearkening back to the original mission of the institution. And he was very intentional about this and he's very uh, articulate in explaining uh, how they uh, really do build from their original mission, that that mission has been pulled across uh, the the many, many years that Drexel has been in operation. And and that it involves an acknowledgement that Drexel was never meant to be an ivory tower kind of place. It was created as a place that was knit into the fabric of working place, Working class Philadelphia, as a place designed to give the working class families of Philadelphia a place to send their kids to get an education for the future and to make a better life. And that is the thread that can be pulled across the life of the institution. Fry and his predecessors are unashamedly clear and proud about their DNA and fully leveraging it. They're not trying to become a Harvard, they're not trying to imitate. Uh, and model after the most elite institutions. Uh, They are referring to their core DNA and working at how do they leverage that? How do they build their value proposition, their distinctiveness from what they know is their best self? Um, As part of this, Fry also talks about the triangle of art, science, and industry business as being foundational from the very beginning. And they are doing some incredible things in terms of leveraging um, initiatives that really do bring together art, science and business and industry. So if you look at what Fry has leveraged during his time as president, it truly is all about taking advantage of and connecting deeply to the place where they are situated. And that's a great example of what Michael Crow was talking about. When Fry became president, he did not borrow his strategy from another institution. He looked deeply within at the mission, core capabilities and opportunities that resided in their physical setting. And he built the strategy from that. There's so much coherence in the strategy. There's coherence with the mission and the history of the place, coherence with the physical setting. And I imagine that's a part of why they are enjoying so much success. Uh, at Drexel, they talk a lot about their playbook for place-based management and engagement. And I think this is something any institution can consider, regardless of where they may be located. At Drexel, it involves doing things that help the local community, using the resources of the university to lift the entire community. The playbook also involves civic engagement providing opportunities for students and faculty to get engaged in very tangible ways like tutoring in local schools, preparing taxes for community residents, and so on. It involves building opportunities for innovation and creating clusters of technology to provide jobs for people in the community but also wonderful opportunities to connect to Drexel's academic programs and faculty. And this notion of thinking of your institution's resources in such a broad and fluid way is truly powerful. Rather than confining your view to what is inside the walls of your institution, imagine rethinking what constitutes your asset base to include all of the potential partners in your broader context and the opportunities that might be found in those partnerships. From this perspective, the opportunities are virtually limitless. And as President Fry says, you can never use lack of resources as an excuse for not doing something important. And that starts with having a mission and vision that is expansive enough and ambitious enough to include potential new partnerships. And the resources that exist outside of your four walls. This so squares with my own long-held belief and what I've observed about those leaders who have a mindset of abundancy as opposed to a deficit-minded kind of uh, framework. Every institution, I believe, always has more capacity than they think if they change their frame of mind and perspective and if they get beyond the limitations that constrain the ability to see possibilities The one other example, um, our conversation with Dr. Jeff Docking, who's the president of Adrian College in Michigan, had similar themes. Docking is one of the key players who helped to found RISE education. RISE is a course sharing consortia that helps institutions share curricula and bring up new academic programs with less cost and high quality, especially for smaller resource constrained institutions that are experiencing challenges in meeting the wide-ranging academic interests of their students or who may be having difficulty filling seats in upper-class specialized courses or in some of the less highly enrolled majors, it is a, uh, I'll call it an ingenious solution. Uh, The model challenges the assumption that an institution has to provide its entire curriculum all on its own something that is becoming increasingly more difficult for many schools. And this is a part of what Docking refers to when he claims that higher ed's business model is broken. If your enrollment's in a free fall, you don't have the resources to sustain robust programmatic offerings that may be exactly what you need to attract more students. And so this course sharing model is all about broadening the way you think about the curricula and your academic program portfolio. The model allows you to strengthen your competitiveness and what you can make available for your students by drawing upon the curricula of the 100 plus institutions that are members of the consortia. Um, You know, I do wanna add one other, uh, from one other conversation um, from somebody who talked about the importance of partnerships. And that is Mary Beth Cooper, who's the president of Springfield College. Springfield is a place that's had its roots in the uh, YMCA and the humanics mission, it has a, it's had a partnership mentality built into its DNA uh, from the beginning. And what Mary Beth said in our conversation is this partnerships are a key part of our strategy because we cannot do anything alone, according to, to Mary Beth. She urges that institutions connect their partnership strategy back to their mission. and. I agree with this. As long as you are mission focused and building out from that mission, this mindset shift may be just what some schools are going to need to thrive and to survive uh, into the future. So again, let me turn it back to you, Mila, and ask you what you think. Well, and
1: again, I I, uh, found um, uh, President Fry's work really compelling in terms of uh, both what they've accomplished and and its origins and and that thread of the uh, institutional mission, the the founding uh, animating spark for the institution, I think, uh, is an important one. And, uh, you know, as I listened to what you were talking about, it it kind of occurred to me. Uh, You know, so many of us um, as leaders, as as members of institutions. uh, value and and uh, deeply appreciate the missions of our institutions, um, and they are an anchoring um, uh, a grounding uh, set of words, documents, values, however they're expressed. Um, I wonder if for these institutions and these leaders that have really been able to develop strong community relationships, partnerships, um, uh, whether that strong grounding mission and, and set of values uh, gives them a little bit of added strength to be able to really form powerful and, and, and uh, mission informed, common good oriented kinds of partnerships, because that's some of that language I'm hearing.
2: In an era of heightened disruption and revolutionary changes, Many education experts, educators, and families are calling for change in our pre-K through grade 12 schools. At Bay Path University, we are meeting this need by teaching our doctoral students how to reimagine organizations, make tough decisions, and re-examine traditional ways of doing business. Our EDD transformative school leadership program is designed for pre-K through grade 12 educators, related professionals and school and district leaders who want to advance in their career to many senior level leadership positions and or seek faculty positions to prepare the next generation of school leaders and educators. Delivered in a completely online format with one immersive weekend workshop per year held on Bay Path's Longmeadow campus, the 56 credit program provides flexibility along with access to a dynamic online community of peers and faculty. There is a 30-credit all-but-dissertation program completion option. And for those who hold an EDS degree or KEG certificate, a 36-credit completion program option is available. If you have a true passion for ensuring quality education for all learners, find it exciting to navigate change and initiate transformation in our pre-K through grade 12 schools, please visit our website at baypath.edu edd for more information about this exciting program and joining our fall cohort.
0: So number four, the fourth theme is one I know you are gonna resonate with and that is operationalizing a student first commitment. And I have to say, one of the things I found really hopeful from this season's conversations is the number of times our guests talked about the importance of paying deeper inten- deeper attention to our students and to their experiences on our campus. There's a very keen awareness, at least among our guests, that the pandemic has taken a considerable toll on many of our students, especially those from disadvantaged, from underrepresented backgrounds. I so appreciated my conversation with Stephen Standiford, who's the president of Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, and he talks passionately about the importance of being student-centered, which he defines as being much more than just being student-concerned. According to Standiford, Standiford, being student-centric is more than just caring about caring about your students. Nearly all colleges express this kind of sentiment, right? We all say, well, we care about our students. Standiford believes institutions have an obligation to design their systems around what students need to succeed. And he describes this as rethinking how the university operates based on student needs, documentable student needs and interests. And like Michael Crow, he sees the role of the president and other leaders in design thinking terms. And as he points out, design thinking starts with putting the client or the student first, getting inside the experience of the student to make sure you really understand what is serving them well and what is not working, and then bringing to bear interventions or change initiatives that are aimed at those things that are not not working. So it's not enough. However, just to design the experience, you have to find a way to stay close to your students across the life of their experience. And particularly now, given how much change is underway, the quick pace with which student demographics are shifting. um, It reminds me actually of one of our doctoral students, uh, her dissertation that you and I both heard last night online, her presentation. And uh, this is exactly what she found. Uh, in terms of her study of graduate students and the support that they need and how important it is to stay close to your students and to have a mechanism in place to be getting ongoing feedback. So you really understand where the pain points are and you can act and do something uh, immediately. In a similar way, UMass global chancellor, Gary Brom, describes the urgency around being student-centered and making sure all of your resources are focused on supporting student success. Now, UMass Global enrolls a different type of student by and large than Bradley, but interestingly, the message is, is almost exactly the same. Brahm describes their goal at UMass Global of applying a what's typically considered to be a traditional college type of value-added experience for non-traditional students in the online space. And this is how UMass Global is differentiating itself. According to Brahm, if the institution admits a student, then they have an obligation to do everything possible to pull them through, to help them succeed. And so they have taken it to action. They've put in place best-in-class student success practices to ensure that every student has an optimal chance for success. Things like personalized advising, one-stop integrated and seamless student support services, curricula that is mapped to the essential workforce skills most in demand now, heavy use of applied project-based learning, co-requisite remediation, and much, much more. And I would just uh, refer folks to the interview uh, with UMass Global Chancellor Gary Brown, if you want to hear more details, he was very explicit about all the the different practices they've put in place, and it's quite, quite impressive. Other guests also talked about the surging mental health issues that they're seeing on their campus and the need to rethink how we best support students, as well as faculty and staff who are struggling with mental health. Justin Reich from MIT reminded us that in our excitement to innovate and to try out new and glitzy technological tools in our classes, that we should not lose sight of the fact that many of our students may actually be technically challenged due to bandwidth access or other resource issues that can easily interfere with the ability of our underrepresented students to fully participate in the learning experience. There's so much more that I could share, but bottom line, leaders need to stay close to their students now more than ever and be willing to adapt everything from program curricula, program delivery, to support services, to policies and processes and more to ensure that we are giving our students every opportunity to be successful. Now, Mila, you are a longtime student affairs professional. Any of this resonate deeply with you oh. or is there something you would add? Well,
1: you know, there's just a lot here and I think uh, I, I actually heard this thread through many of the conversations of this season and, 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 and really focused certainly on um, challenging institutions and the way we operate. And the lens, the mindset that we bring to uh, uh, understanding our work of keeping that keeping that student students front and center, um, those that are with us now, and those that are coming coming to us um, uh, in in future years. And I think one of the things that um, uh, you know I, I think probably also uh, underlies a lot of the conversations uh, this, this year, even more so than previous years, is the recognition that uh, the disruption that has affected higher education in our society um, has been particularly pronounced in K through 12 um, education. And so um, I, I think this, this uh, viewpoint of becoming, uh, remaining, growing student-centric Um, It probably will continue to be even more important as we welcome uh, several generations of students who've really faced enormous disruptive forces in their lives and in their education. And and so those services are gonna be particularly necessary um, and and the way we pay attention to their experience um, from prior to arrival uh, to completions is going to be important. I would also add, um, and I'm not sure I saw this explicitly, although again, it's hinted at, um, and I think Justin Reich um, gets at this a bit, is that um, in order to be student-centric, we also need to be faculty and staff attentive. Um, Higher education, whether we will be always be a blend, you know, going forward of of technologically structured environments and human structured environments, Uh, there is always a person or a set of people behind these environments. Uh, So much of our education and educational experience um, that is given, delivered and, you know, um, uh, managed with students. Um, is is a human experience. And so um, it it is delivered by our faculty, it's delivered by our staff, our support service folks. Um, And and even those small interactions we know are important to the way that students feel attended to or in the language of the student who presented her uh, dissertation last night, uh, that they matter. And so I think part of the call um, and one of the challenges to being student-centric is how do we ensure that all of our structures, all of our people, all of our technology has that at heart um, and they are partners with us.
0: So this last theme, theme number five, is going to seem very obvious and yet uh, it, it isn't, I don't think. And I'm gonna call this last theme, the importance of leading with purpose and clarity of vision. Now, on one hand, it makes great sense that this would be something that is top of mind for folks considering the disruption underway, the impending demographic cliff that so many people are talking about. And many of our leaders stressed the urgency to lead with a strong, clear, and compelling sense of purpose to make sure that the strategy is clear and inspiring and aligns in some way back to the mission and institutional DNA. And that's a theme that runs through actually all of these five Topics that we're, we're talking about. A number of our guests talked about taking the time to understand your institution's unique value proposition and then aligning your strategy so that the value proposition can be lived out so that students and others experience it when they interact with your institution. As we just talked about, many of the guests urged that the strategy and the key actions be driven by a commitment to keeping students' needs first, as well as building resilience in anticipation of future disruption. The actual living out of the mission, however, is not easy. It requires a commitment and a discipline, according to many of our guests. And I wanna uh, go back to Gary Brom. A, a quote uh, that he shared. He, he said this, the most important leadership lesson I learned was how important vision, mission, and values are. One of the first things we did as a part of separating from Chapman, we went through a rebranding process of identifying and working with the community on our vision, mission, and values. And then we made a commitment to use that to hire everybody. Why? Because the culture is the most important thing, getting people who understand your culture, especially in the faculty. And so we were fortunate to hire faculty and to have faculty already who embraced our vision mission and values, and then as we went forward to do all the crazy innovative things that we did, our faculty and staff embraced it, they understood it, and so when you get uh, that kind of across-the-board support for your vision, mission, and values, everybody's moving in the same direction, and it makes a huge difference, and I have to say, as I listened to him, I was reminded of what Jim Collins always talks about and writes about, uh, getting the right people on the best strategy. And I can I can attest firsthand to how important that is if you want your strategy and mission to be lived out. Stephen Lemkul, founding chancellor of the University of Minnesota at Rochester, talked about the importance of not getting caught in the ghosts of university past. That's another new term I wasn't familiar with, but boy, when he explained it, I thought, oh, I've lived with lots of ghosts of university past. We both have. Um, He describes this as all of those things that are baked into how we operate, the culture, and so on. The things that get in the way of arriving at a compelling vision and strategy that is relevant and appropriate for your unique institution. And as he stresses, there is so much clutter in the culture of every institution. That clutter gets in the way of your effectiveness, your focus, your viability. So an example he gave me, he shared the decision that he made to not invest in intercollegiate athletics, something that many constituents thought was essential. They thought he was crazy because the ghost of the university past would suggest that if you're going to be a real university of any standing, you have to have intercollegiate athletics. Well, in creating the University of Minnesota Rochester, they made a number of decisions like this. And as a result, they wound up creating and experience focused entirely on high quality learning and student success, with a focus primarily on health sciences. There was very little clutter that got in the way of that strategic focus. Very narrow, but relevant for their place. They were located right next to the Mayo Clinic. Uh, Very relevant for their mission and context. I will say it's easier to do this when you're starting from scratch, which he was, but the lessons are still important. Nevertheless, he also argues that innovation alone will not be the driving force that reshapes higher education. Rather than trying to compete with the institutions that already have a disproportionate share of students and resources, why not build a strategy that positions you to compete on the basis of what makes you truly special and distinctive, which he says is your campus purpose. And if you lead by your why, the why that you exist, your purpose, That why will shape your innovative structure. It also enables you to imagine and tailor practices that will set you apart in the marketplace. And he's really talking here about creating your own blue strategy uh, space rather than drowning in the red ocean of the competition. A sustainable institution is gonna be the one that really establishes and understands and lives its reason for existence that finds its own blue ocean space. Now, Mary Beth Cooper also stressed the importance of rooting one's strategy and mission, in her words. The difficulty, I think, as a leader, and I believe this to be true in terms of my approach, you have to stay true to your mission. You can't be everything to everyone. But the clarity you need to provide to prospective students and your alumni is about staying true to your message. And so even with all that collaboration we've been pushing at Springfield College, you can't morph or change just because it sounds good today. We were founded in 1885. We are approaching 140 years. The reality is we're going to be here 140 years from now. I'm betting on it. We have to keep the long term in mind as we design our strategy. And so key insights in closing. Well, this is my this is my takeaway. Given the shifting sands, the amount of change in process, it is crucial that institutions be guided by an abundantly clear sense, a laser focused sense, of purpose and a strategy that is rooted in the institution's value propositions. Essentially, those things that an institution can claim as legitimate and compelling points of differentiation. As so many of our guests have said, the strategy and actions must Be driven by a commitment to keeping students' needs first, building resilience in anticipation of what we know is going to be ongoing disruption into the future, and a compelling and viable institutional vision for the future of learning. So Mila, these were such inspiring conversations. There's so much more that I could share, but I'm going to stop. Uh, We'll direct listeners to the episodes if they want to hear more. But let me just ask you in closing, are there any other themes or important messages you want to add as we wrap up this episode? Anything else on your radar? Well,
1: thanks. I I would add a couple of things because I think uh, one of the things that's always hard, this has been a fabulous season with um, these remarkable individuals in, in a range of leadership roles, um, many for long standing periods who've really brought that wisdom uh, to, to the conversation. Uh, sometimes I think about those folks who are listening who uh, think about their own circumstances, uh, their own roles, their own institutions, who may not be a president, who may not be a vice president. And it can be hard when we look at these. I mean, these folks have uh, often spent years. Developing, guiding, uh, making mistakes, and learning from those mistakes to um, uh, arrive at where they are and where and, and where their leadership has taken their organizations, their or institutions. Uh, and, and I think it's important to recognize that we are all innovators and leaders in the making, no matter where we are. And because uh, uh, th- that moment of looking at somebody who's just achieved so much, it feels like there can be such a, a gap. Um, but there are two things I would offer to folks who are, who are in those uh, earlier leadership roles um, or who are aspiring to those leadership roles. And I think what I heard um, in, in the conversation that, that you and I had today and, and from our, uh, our, our uh, guest this, this season is the power of what if. What if we look at something a different way? What if we do something a different way? Um, what if we were not this? Or what if we were this? And so that power of those two words, what if, uh, and as much as that starts with us, me, what if, um, it's a question that's better asked in community with others and answered together. And so that, that, that opening up the perspective, as, as you've talked about, um, and many of our guests talked about that mindset. So asking the question and taking some time to think freely to to be um, released from some of those constraints we put on ourselves and our institution. So asking the what if question um, daily, if not hourly. Um, The second one is related is innovation can begin anywhere. Um, Obviously, these are some of the bigger ideas that I think higher education is seeing and wrestling with and playing with. Um, but in our institutions or in our um, organizations that may not be centered on a campus, um, innovation can begin in a department um, or with a set of individuals across departments. Um, and so that, that interest in innovation and change and paying attention to opportunities or challenges, um, uh, I, I, folks should not shy away from, from doing whatever innovation they can do in their own space um, because I think we didn't actually ask that of of all of our guests, but I think if you ask them, talk about your earlier career and your earlier learning experiences, it is about the the practice of innovation early on um, in small ways that allow you to get to those bigger, larger, um, even more impactful kinds of of change and innovation in the way in which you think.
0: some more Solson and you've been listening to Ingenious You the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. This is our last full episode of season 3. We will be taking a short break during the remaining summer months as we begin to plan for season 4. If there is someone you would like to hear from in Season 4, or if you have suggestions for topics for upcoming episodes, please reach out and let us know. We would love to include your ideas in our next season of Conversations. Even while we are away, I invite you to stay connected with our Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice, CELLO, which sponsors the monthly free Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series on some of higher ed's most pressing issues. Be on the lookout for the launch of our new YouTube channel, where you'll be able to watch video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And subscribe now so you don't miss out on the release of our new content, which will be made available while we are away on a short break. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Be well and stay strong.